1: Today we are going to be talking about the details of Ainsley MacLeod's books on past lives. Enjoy.
0: Hypnosis, mindfulness, meditation. Mama, 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 mama. Past life regression.
1: Mommy, can you play? Spirituality. Mama.
0: spirituality. Mama.
1: This spiritual fix. Two Mystical Mamas hacking the self-help game. With Anna strongquist and Christina Wilson. Hi Anna.
0: Hey Christina. How's it going? I'm it's going good. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Yeah. Today is gonna to be a great conversation because we're gonna be talking about some of the highlights in Ainsley McLeod's books. And for those of you who don't know, Ainsley McLeod is a past life psychic. Mm-hmm. And he has spirit guides tell him what the past lives were and what kind of past life traumas we have and soul ages we have and, and our challenges and, strengths and all sorts of things that kind of follow us through different lifetimes and I will link two different interviews with him in the show notes one with Ellen and one with Oprah so if you want to familiarize yourself with him prior to our conversation with him next week you can and you can also see a list of his books that we're going to be referencing today but before we get into that Christina wanted to dip her nose into just randomly opening a page in a book yeah just to give you guys some context though which is why it's a little bit creepy
1: as kind of cool this is a book so Lazarus was a hot topic in particularly i think i'm guessing it's atlanta because it looks like a lot of the talks actually happened in atlanta but he was a he was a channel he was basically like throughout all of the new age especially that happened in the 70s 80s and 90s you found that people were becoming channels and they were channeling these entities right that were you know, letting us know the things that were going on, right? And there's this one guy, and I always love the pictures of him because I remember that my mom had the Lazarus books and because she was super into the New Age before she died. And I always love, because the pictures of him are always creepy because he's the type of channel who literally will, like, the channel takes over his body. It looks like a Sears family
0: portrait with, like, the fuzzy...
1: Yeah, it does, but it also, like, here, let me show you, like that. Right? Because like it's a picture of like him and his eyes are closed and he's trying to describe something because like a lot of channels do that, like especially when the first channels that we were seeing that were coming into like the mainstream, their bodies would be taken over by the channel. Right. So it was like a lot of the time when we channel now, we channel in our podcast all the time and we don't have the experience of an entity actually coming into our body to channel. We just hear them. Right. So this is a book that was my mother's. It ended up in her best friend's library for quite a number of years and then it came back to me a couple of years ago. And I've never picked it up, but I just remember it so vividly. Like even though I was like less than six when I was having most of the encounters, I totally remember this. And I opened up to a random page and guess what I opened it up to? Reincarnation. The page on death. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and it has an earmark, which is the creepy part. Like a little bit to me because like if I were my mom and I was like, I'm really sick and could die at any point, like let me just earmark this page on death. She didn't underline anything and it, I'm assuming it is her and it wasn't her her best friend who earmarked it, but like it's just kind of interesting. So I'm going to read out of it because I think it's interesting. Your body is a vehicle. That's all it is, it's an illusion. It's made up of light and sound that is dense enough to be called a body. And when you watch television, you see light and sound and it looks like bodies walking around in your television screen. They aren't bodies, you know that. When you go to the movies and see figures on the big screen, they look like bodies moving around too, but you know they're not. You know that's light and sound in coordination to create the illusion. Well, you're just a three-dimensional illusion and that body of yours is a vehicle. Now, how would you feel about getting an automobile assigned to you at birth? and you could never get rid of it. You had to keep the same automobile from birth. Well, even at 16, yes, like then think about the first automobile you had. How would you feel about still having to drive that? You mean, I don't get to trade this one in? Nope, you have, <laughs> you have to keep it and you have to treat it right and you have to program it to run forever. Would you like that? No. I want to trade it in. I want a newer model. Some of you trade them in every two years regardless. Some of you keep them a little longer if you particularly like them, but you always are looking forward to a new automobile, the new vehicle. Well, similarly, death is a process of turning in the vehicle and saying, I'm done with this vehicle. I'm ready either to move on without a vehicle or to get another one.
0: Oh, wow. It is reincarnation. Yeah. Exactly.
1: (laughs) So that's why I think it's so very appropriate that I randomly went to this page when we were talking about past lives. So indeed to program not to die, we would suggest look deeper. Why are you considering death a failure? Why are you considering it bad or wrong? Why are you seeing it as something you never want to do? Admittedly, you might not want to do it now or next year or next week or whatever, but sometime you're going to want to. You can program to be healthy and to live as long as you desire, to be as old as you desire to be, but eventually indeed you will want to die and be ready to die and be eager to do so. Truthfully, it is not inevitable as a rule or a law, but it is something that you will desire someday.
0: Cool. That yeah. was quite fitting for it today's was. episode. I love I thought that episode too. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Well today we're gonna talk about different concepts presented in Ainsley McLeod's book books i should say because he has a number of them and they go into different topics so we're going to start with just talking a little bit about his introduction to soul ages his introduction to soul types and then we're going to go into the the 10 past life traumas and he gets this information from spirit guides who visit him and he's going to go more in detail about this next week most likely when we chat with him mm-hmm. but we're just going to give you a little basic rundown first and foremost. So we have the different soul ages. You want to talk a little bit about that?
1: Uh, yeah, sure. So basically the soul ages are uh, put into a category of one to 10, and he is definitely not the only person who has categorized them in that particular manner. But soul ages are considered new young souls are ages one through five. Older souls are considered six through 10. If you are in the 10 range then it's likely you're close to your last life whereas if you're one then you maybe have around 100 or 120 lives left to go that's on average what i've heard it it depends on who you ask but the theosophists and ainsley mcleod and a couple of others believe that there are that any one of us go from around you know 75 to 125 lives in in any given soul reincarnation to learn the lessons that we need to learn to come to earth so Here's one through five. And I should preface this with saying that if you're listening to this podcast, it's likely that you are five through ten. But I'm gonna talk about Oh no, no, through six through anyway.
0: ten. Oh, thank you. Six through ten. Yeah. Uh, Basically, if you're listening to a podcast called This Spiritual Fix or mm-hmm. you look for spiritual podcasts, you are you already probably are a six through ten. Like it's just a given. Yeah. Because people who are one through five, new souls, aren't interested in this stuff. Right.
1: So number one you are predominantly concerned with identification and apprehension. You need simplicity in your life. It's very primitive, primal sort of experience. Level two, it's about cooperation, and then you have a difficulty, you know, it's about mistrust, there's a lot of misogyny in it, it's that kind of level of existence. Level three, you're aiming for belonging, and you may struggle or want to be in conformity. So it's that whole, we believe in the glorious afterlife Mm-hmm. You, what was the reference to the Vikings? So he
0: saw, talks about its conformity and like a belief in a belief in belonging. So like the Vikings or the kamikazes of the Japanese, or you're willing to risk it all to conform and belong to your culture. Okay. Even your death, even your life.
1: Even your life, right. Uh, level four is about expansion, but then you struggle with hypocrisy.
0: So the example he gives of this is like someone who uses the whipping boy, which was like prehistorically, like not prehistorically, sorry. In the past, let's say you were rich, you were, you were king or whatever, you'd have something called the whipping boy that every time you're frustrated, you would just take it out on him and beat him up. And so the whipping...
1: Or instead of punishing your own children, you punish, punish that child instead.
0: Yeah. And so the idea, like in a modern day example, was that in Spokane, Washington, there was this mayor who was trying to pass all these laws restricting gay rights. And then it came out... To find out that he was in fact gay or he was involved in gay prostitution or something i can't remember the details but it was like he was trying to punish other people so that he wouldn't have to look at his own homosexuality wow okay yeah
1: so the last level of the young souls is level five which is getting into more of exploration right but it's also dealing with the difficulty of exploitation. So exploitation also involves the fear of looking weak. So you you use G.W. Bush.
0: So there was an example in his book that George W. Bush did something incorrectly, which he would have admitted to it. He says, but I'm not even going to apologize because ultimately, you know, we are the best country or something. So it was like he wasn't ever willing to apologize or admit he was wrong because he didn't want us, our country to look weak. Yeah.
1: gosh. You just think about the times of G W Bush. It feels like so long ago to have. Like, it's isn't it interesting the escalation of? Anyway, uh, won't get into that. Okay, so next we're going into the first level of the what is considered the old soul.
0: And then just to like reference this, if you are an old soul, you probably all your friend group is old souls as well. If you are in the in the life coaching business, or you're a psychic, or you're any of these healer professions.
1: You're likely an eight, nine, 10. Yeah. And all your area. clients
0: are six and up. Like there's no way that a one through five is coming to you. And one through five so though could easily be in your family. So like you could be a, a six or seven and have one or two parents. Me, uh, Meaning you could have young soul parents. Yeah. Like soul age has nothing to do with like an old soul is not going to give birth to an old soul. It's not guaranteed. Like you don't know what, how the dice is going to land.
1: Right. And I think it's also important at this point, before we go into the old things, uh, the old soul groups, is to recognize, too, we talk about this with humiliation when we've talked about this a couple of different times, but we have this false sense of hierarchy because we are in a patriarchal culture, let's be honest. So it's important to recognize that, as Anna has described in the past, that you know, we're all on the X axis in a lot of ways. If we're reincarnating as humans, we are all on the X axis. Even if we're, you know, using an XY axis that looks like, you know, like a cross, right? So going back to all your math days, the Y axis is what goes up and down and then the X axis is what goes across. We'd all like to say, well, I'm an old soul. I'm so amazing because I'm an old soul. We're not encouraging that. (laughs) This is not meant to create division because ultimately your primary consciousness is not an old soul, but guess what? You are simultaneously living your young soul incarnations as well. You just don't have conscious awareness of it, right? right. So, like, the And whole you were idea once young. Yeah, it's like you saying
0: that my newborn baby is somehow inferior to my five-year-old. Like, no, we were all newborns once, right. you know? Right.
1: So the whole point is this is not to create division and be like, I'm special or I deserve different.
0: Group brain. nine, we're, they, we're not going to let the sevens and eights sit with us. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Are we nines? No, I'm, I don't know what we are. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's not nice. what we're encouraging here no, at all. No, no, no.
1: So, okay. So level six is introspection is the main aim of the, the level, but you will also experience and possibly grapple with self-doubt.
0: And then these people are often beginning their quest towards spirituality.
1: Right. Innovation is the hallmark of level seven. And then you may also deal with anxiety.
0: And these are the people who experience that whole 99% perspiration, 1% inspiration. They're the ones behind the inspiration. So two common age seven souls that he references in the book is Michelangelo and Thomas Edison. Nice. Okay. Level eight
1: is about reciprocity and you may struggle with complacency.
0: And an example of this would be Doctors Without Borders. So people drawn to, to protests and helping the world and saving others interesting
1: it's interesting too that complacency comes into that is it like kind of a do you think maybe it's like after going through the innovation stage of age seven you're like you you just have to struggle with like oh do I have to keep going oh my god I've done (laughs) fucking eight levels of this and however many lives are in each of those less uh, you know you know because if you if you average 100 lives you're doing 10 lives for each of these levels at least right Yeah, yeah. yeah right Right, I can understand that. Maybe I am sitting in complacency sometimes. All right. Level nine is, is the strive for self-improvement. And then you can struggle with preoccupation. Um, So basically
0: obsession with your, with your shadow or whatever,
1: with your stuff. Yeah. Right.
0: And in this, in this life, you're going to see a lot of confronting of the phobias, maybe unraveling of your past lives, understanding their past lives. And it's a, it's a lifetime of spiritual exploration.
1: So very likely, a lot of this spiritual fix.
0: Listens. I that's why I think we are nines mm. because we both get obsessed with our shadow work and our mm-hmm. light work, and we're all about self improvement. Yeah. That, that's why I, f- I feel like I'm a nine, mm-hmm. but I could be wrong. Yeah.
1: All right. So level ten is where you're reaching the point of compassion, right? So basically, compassion being the understanding that it's not about it's about recognizing that you you know the perpetrator deserves as much if not more compassion than the victim.
0: Right. And this is like your retirement phase. You're like easing out of the life. And so some of these people might have more difficult childhoods than others because they're on their way out and they want to learn every last lesson they can, you know? Right. Yeah. Then I want to go into the soul types, which are 10 different types of soul types or soul characters. Mm-hmm. And you can actually go to his website. I'll put the link in the show notes and take a quiz and it'll tell you what percent you are. So for example, I'm primarily a spiritualist and a caregiver, right. and I think a little bit of a creator. So not surprising, you know, I have a, a spiritual podcast and I have a caregiving Career and I have a caregivingness about being a wife and mother, so I'm a very you know caregiver type wife and mother. So then, and Christina, what did you get when you took the quiz?
1: I was predominantly a creator and a spiritualist. With the the next one down was a um, thinker. No, I was super low on thinker. I was super low on thinker, caregiver, and helper. Big surprise. I was, I was most high. I believe. I think it was like leader. It was like a mix between leader and um, educator.
0: Oh, interesting. Oh, yeah, educator. I could see that. Okay, so these are the different soul types, and I'm just going to talk about their strength and weakness. So the first one being the helper, and so their strength is that they are of service to humanity, service to others, and their downside is they can have the challenge of submission. They need to watch out for being too submissive. Yeah. The caregiver, their strength is nurturing others, and then they need to watch out for self-neglect.
1: How are they so different? Like, do you feel that they're different? Because you have both of you them in you. Yeah, I like, I'm just really curious. Both are
0: of. I do have both of them, and I do think they're different. I think the nurturer is a lot about cuddles and food and emotion, and service is more like I'm gonna go help them build a well in their village. You know. Okay. And I think, like, I think Doctors Without Borders would be more of a service thing, whereas opening an orphanage would be more of a caregiving thing. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Sure. I, I just see it a little bit more. I see helper as more like the masculine force of it and the caregiver more the feminine. Okay. So one, Oh, that's, that's really helpful. Thank you. Okay, cool. All right. Number three, the educator. So these are the teachers and the thing they need to watch out for is being verbose. <laughs> Ha-ha. I can't possibly relate to that. The creator's strength is creativity and their weakness is distraction. Mm. Totally. My father who is an artist, the performer their strength is communication, and their weakness is pretension. The hunter, so this one's an interesting one. The hunter, theirs is activity, and their weakness is inflexibility. So the hunters are kind of like the go-getters, the, the finance people on Wall Street, you know? Mm-hmm. The leaders, their strength is authority, and their weakness is intransigence, and I don't even know what that word means. Intransigence means inability to move or
1: to, like, being, being inflexible, basically. Okay. Yeah.
0: Okay. Then you have the spiritualist and we kind of said it before their focus is on improvement, but then their weakness is obsession. I totally relate to that one. Yeah. And then the last one is the transformer and the transformers are usually on their last life and transformers would be going towards unity. And then their weakness is unworldliness, meaning like maybe they're hard to relate to. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't think that you can actually get transformer
1: on that quiz, by the way.
0: Oh, I don't think so
1: no i don't think so yeah
0: all right so then i'm going to go now into the past life traumas i find very very interesting because we talked a lot about the primal wounds we have a whole season on the five primal wounds and in a way all of these these 10 past life traumas could be dissected into the primal wounds right but he kind of so it's kind of like a more exaggerated explanation of the primal wounds we could say yep And he goes into 10 of them. So I'm going to read them by list. And then what we're going to do for the rest of this episode is Christina and I are going to share our personal stories of past life regression that we've given ourselves through hypnosis and then the results or outcomes we've seen in our life after doing this work. So then these are the 10 past life traumas. So they're not past life traumas. I'm sorry. They're past life fears. Here we go. Fear of authority. Mm -hmm. Number two, fear of loss. Fear of inferiority. Fear of betrayal. Fear of failure, fear of intimacy, fear of self-expression, fear of powerlessness, fear of death, and then fear of rejection. So let's go through the fears. Yes.
1: All right. Fear of authority. Anna's the one who's done most of the amazing work on these past life things, but you've always been so good at it. So I'm excited to get into it. Now that we have the upcoming interview with Ainsley and things like that, I'm going to get into these as well. But I haven't done it prior too, so I'm going to learn a lot from you, Anna.
0: All right. So the first past life fear is the fear of authority. Mm -hmm. And I can tell you about my most recent past life, which was actually I was poisoned with Kool-Aid at Jonestown. And that is probably my only famous life of all of my lives. And one of the reasons why I'm sure of it is because I heard um, a tape of Jim Jones saying the last words as he was on his speaker in Jonestown and he's like, drink it, drink it quickly, quickly. And when I heard his voice, oh, my whole body started shaking like I was having a seizure and I started having a panic attack and flashbacks. And then that incident in Jonestown happened in October of 1978 and I was born in August of 1979. So, like, almost nine months to the day I was born later. Wow. And in this life, I knew my name, and I'm not going to say the name on air in case this person's relatives are still out there and listening, but I went into the census report of all the people who died that day, and sure enough, I found this person's name that I shared, and I was, a, I was of a certain race, and I was married to someone of a different race, and she had a child of her race, and sure enough, the person who... name I saw was married to... I'm not giving too many details because, again, if this person's family is out there and listening, somehow I don't want to disrespect anyone's memory, but let's just say it all matched up, okay? So very, very validating to me about that life. And how does that translate into my life now? Well, I do have a fear of authority. So I have an intense fear of anyone who claims to be a religious leader. yes. And for example, I spent many years, not many years, two or three years in India at the Osho Ashram. I never let Osho completely into my heart. I'm always like, I like his meditations and I enjoy him, but I never considered him my guru. My husband has a guru who gave Shaktipat. I went to my husband's guru many a time. I never let that man into my heart. Like I yeah. uh, always, always keeping these, these leader, these uh, gurus at arm's length. And Pretty much with the exception of our shaman, Rabbi, who I wouldn't consider a guru. Anyone who claims to be a guru or saintly figure, I keep at arm's length. The exception being Ram Das, who is dead.
1: Well, but he's dead, so he's different.
0: So he's dead, so he's safe. Yeah. But I will not have a guru in my life who is in a physical body because I have a fear of authority because I fear they're going to betray me and kill me and poison my loved one's child, children. Okay, yeah. so I have major, major stuff with that. So how have I transformed that? But boom, I haven't. <laughs> <laughs> I actually haven't done any work on that. I think it's because i it's such a strong one for me and a recent one for me that I still feel like that fear of authority protects me. But I will say this, that I had a phobia of poison since I was a child. And you can ask anyone in my family and my parents. I was obsessed with poison. I was I mean, I can't believe they never took me to a psychiatrist over this. I was obsessed with poison. I was worried that everything I was eating was poison. I was scared that if I touched the chalk at the recess track, and then I touched the cup that touched my lips, and what if that had cocaine in and I overdosed on cocaine and died? I mean, the amount of beliefs I went through. Yeah. And you still do it sometimes too. And I still do it sometimes. And Mm -hmm. my children, I joked that the poison control knew me by name because I was calling the poison control constantly whenever my children would pick something up and eat it or accidentally do this or accidentally do that. I was constantly calling poison control when they were babies because I was paranoid that they were going to get poisoned. And it wasn't until I listened to Ainsley McLeod's book on past life fears that I recognized that all my poison phobias were coming because in my most recent life I was poisoned. And just knowing that, I do think, has helped alleviate my fear of poison.
1: Okay, so this is crazy, and you can we can take this for what you will. We can pass over this. But there's literally a whole bunch of people sitting on the porch right now who are from Jonestown, and I don't really know what to do about it. Like, there's a part of me that thinks that you have an ability to release something right now that can help release them. Is there anything that's coming to your mind?
0: i think we need to forgive jim jones
1: yeah oh god you do oh my god it's so intense holy shit my body is like racking with how intense that is yes
0: okay i will we'll put this on the back burner guys (laughs) let's (laughs) thank you for uh, let's uh move along listening to that let's move along yeah yeah okay number two is the fear of loss do you have any past lives that you want to talk about with that one no okay well I can give one yeah yeah you'll just keep giving them okay I'll give them and then you jump in if I can
1: find something all right
0: so I had a past life this one there is concrete evidence here so this is actually beautiful I had a friendship with someone who we could say was a codependent relationship where Mm -hmm. I felt that I was mothering this person it was not an equal relationship it was a I need to take care of this person's emotions Mm a relationship and it was not healthy it was not a, an equally reciprocated relationship it was a friendship of like I felt responsible for their broken heart which I didn't even break okay yeah it was one of those kind of relationships friendships right and I did a past life regression to understand what this was about and it turned out in this past life this friend was actually my father so in this life I go back to World War two where there's like air raid sirens going off and I'm a child and our house is hit or apartment building was hit And everything crumbled and we're literally like there's bodies everywhere there's smoke there's dust and my father is trapped under debris Mm -hmm. of the building and my mother and my brother and I are trying our hardest to get him out and it's clear that like there's no one to help us get him out and we have to get the hell out of there because there's more more coming and I wanted so badly to stay with my father like he was my I was like his golden child I was his favorite and I adored my dad I mean I fucking adored that man and I had to leave him in a pile of rubble alone dying to save my life like I had no choice like my mom and brother I think my brother picked me up and like scooped me up and left because they're like this is like a lost cause and we had to go and I was just screaming for my dad I'm like gonna start crying thinking about this. And I carried that sense of responsibility and guilt of of I didn't cause my father to die, but I was a witness to it, and I could do nothing to help him. And mm-hmm. so how did it carry over? Is that in this life, I felt a tremendous responsibility for healing his broken heart, because, you know, I didn't want to see him suffer. Yeah, but it wasn't my job. Yeah. So having that realization was good because I realized that, just like my dad had his destiny in that life this person had their destiny in this life and i didn't necessarily have to protect him or save him yeah yeah wow yeah so that was that one (laughs) all right number three fear of inferiority Mm -hmm. so this was a recent one that i did so i haven't yet seen the ripple effect of healing this in this lifetime but i was working this was long time ago if you want to think about Downton Abbey where like these rich homes these that are almost like palaces have a whole brigade of workers and I was a tenant on the farm my father my parents worked on this on this land this huge estate of this large house and some accident happened when I was a little girl I think either a horse kicked me or I fell off of something but my shoulder fell out of uh, was pulled out of joint mm-hmm. And I was forced to have the shoulder, my humerus, put back in. Mm-hmm. But whoever did it, did it incorrectly. Like, they didn't know. We didn't have, like, medics on hand. So someone just, like, did their best to jerry-rig my shoulder back in and pop it back into place. And in doing so, they damaged my brachial plexus, which is like a nerve branch on my arm. So I had chronic pain my whole life. And my hand was essentially in some ways paralyzed. Like, I just couldn't use it. So I was, yeah. I was disabled. So fast forward, I became a maid working in that estate because I wasn't able to do farm work with one arm I was sent to work in the main home as a maid Mm -hmm. you know dusting and cleaning because that could be done with one hand and my wages were docked because I was disabled Mm -hmm. and you know like in Downton Abbey you'll see these movies where like a guest is coming and all the maids light up up in the house I wasn't allowed to go out there because I was just I just didn't look right and you know I wasn't to be one of the ones you welcoming me. You weren't presentable, yeah. I wasn't presentable. And so there was a great sense of inferiority that my disability made me different. And this is like, I don't know when in history this was, but they clearly were not PC about being disabled. So I was like made fun of and my wages were docked and like no one really gave a fucking shit that I was excluded from a lot of things for this. So I was just considered less than for having this arm. I can say how it helped, When I finished doing the session, I stopped having arm pain. I I have had like chronic arm pain in this arm, and it's not 100% resolved, but it's like 85% resolved since doing that regression. Wow. So I could say that. That's very intense. I have one for inferiority. Yeah. Okay, so
1: this one I'm going to get – this could get really long and convoluted. The basic idea is – The Theosophist started with Madame Blavatsky. Basically, it's a group of what people can think of as the spiritualists. But basically, it's a group of people who were a part of the kind of Edwardian, like late Victorian kind of resurgence of of the experience of, of spiritualism in the world, right? So you have the Theosophists, and the Theosophist Society is actually very strong and going. And so... Madame Blavatsky was a main one who started, and then after that, you had people like Rudolf Steiner was a theosophist at one point, Annie, Annie Besant was one of the main people who took over from Madame Blavatsky, and then you also have William Ledbetter, and there's just like all sorts of things. So all throughout my current life, I have had so many touches with the Theosophist Society. I have, I have just, just more than you could ever, like when I was a Greenpeace worker in New Zealand, I happened to knock on the door of the Theosophist Society and literally ended up just like drinking tea and talking to them for like hours at a time. Rudolf Steiner and I have had this like very intimate relationship of like, I worked, I met my husband when I was working at a biodynamic nursery and biodynamics, he was the creator of biodynamics as a system and just like... Just more more counts and more touches than I can even like enumerate right here. Um, but the interesting thing was that ages ago, I did a regression because Madame Blavatsky... I was wondering what my connection to the Theosophist Society was. And so I did a regression, and I got some really, really distinct information, which basically indicated that I hadn't necessarily incarnated with Madame Blavatsky. I wasn't Madame Blavatsky, but that I had basically walked into her her soul and channeled a book for her because this was the detail that I was given in meditation. I then went to Wikipedia and literally in the years that I had specified, there's a reference to the fact that she wrote a book based on books that she had never had access to.
0: That someone walked in and wrote. that
1: someone walked in that it almost and so she actually referred to this person as her friend, right? Like she, I, I didn't know any of this when I when I did the original like channeling. I had no idea, but there was like distinct information that I had somehow been the been her friend who had walked into her head so that she could channel this book.
0: That's so nuts, I love
1: it. It was so nuts, but it was interesting because what it did was it it it, it caused this information where she got the credit for having written it. And obviously I had come in as a service, but it was interesting because it seems as if I, this is like the the second part of the story is that basically it seems as if I incarnated shortly after that, because it was like almost like a deal that the two of us came up with, like, I'm going to help you write this book and I'm going to incarnate and then you're going to find me and then I'm going to be able to, to, to have my own credit for my own stuff. You know what I'm saying? Right. So like, but that didn't happen. Like they found, like, I think that I got found from what I can gather, I got found and I was friends with people like Rudolf Steiner and all that kind of stuff. Like I was in very intimate kind of relationships with everyone in the post Blavatsky Theosophist Society, but like I never got any credit for any of the stuff I did, but like almost everybody took ideas from the things that I was bringing forth. So
0: fear of inferiority,
1: fear of inferiority.
0: Very cool. So for number four, betrayal, Again, I'll just touch on that Jonestown life where I was betrayed by my guru, and as we, or teacher, and as it translates now, is I have a fear of betrayal of authority, betrayal of anyone in power. Yeah. So I've always kind of marched to the beat of my own drum as much as possible. Yeah. And I haven't healed that, so I can't really report on that. I have one for betrayal. Okay. Because I just did it, like literally a <laughs> oh. half an
1: hour ago. This is the one I did, not I haven't okay. told you about, okay. right? And this, I was trying to figure out what it was like after I kind of like came back to earth after the, the meditation and it was the betrayal of the great mother, Oh. right? So we've talked about the great mother wound earlier in this season and all about how, you know, we expect to be taken care of, right? And that kind of stuff. And so this is the life that the betrayal for the great mother happened for me. And it was really fucking cool. Okay. So imagine. What, year, what country was it? It wasn't, it was like a really fucking long time. It was like when the earth was red, like the whole atmosphere was red, right? So talking about like the proto-Saturn, you know, we were talking about before, like all that stuff where the sun wasn't the sun. I was a shaman. And the fascinating thing about this life was that I was like trying to understand it because if you, and I'm going to be getting this a little bit wrong, but it's my understanding that birds can see magnetic fields, right? It's not just a sense it's like a sense that they almost, it's like, it kind of like, it, it, there's a sense organ that they have that allows them to see magnetic fields. Which like, is so why that, they can. Which is why they navigate to, you know, to they're, they're able to navigate in whatever way they are. But what happened, what was happening in this kind of, when I was a shaman back when everything was red, was that not only could you see magnetic fields, and you could see, you could see electricity, electromagnetic experiences, you could also see intent so like it was like it was crazy because they showed me this like tiger and they showed this whole big huge bubble around the tiger that showed all of its possible paths you know and so it was like the reptilian brain the quote-unquote reptilian brain didn't need to operate back then because you didn't have to anticipate danger because you could know if something intended to happen it was easier to accept if you knew the intention it's kind of—it's it's really hard for me to explain. It's really hard for me to explain, but I'll basically just say: imagine that you can see intent. It's kind of like—if any of you guys have ever seen the director's cut of Donnie Darko, we're really throwing back here. The director's—the if any of you have seen the director's cut of Donnie Darko, there's there's an experience in which. a a bubble of water comes out from his chest and he's able to see where he's about to go. It's like a time-traveling mechanism. Like, he's able to, like... He, like, he sees his bubble go and it goes into the kitchen and goes out through the thing. And so he starts following it, right? And he ends up finding a gun, right? Because he's following his future steps, but his future steps are being shown to him. So it's almost like it's leading him to the place. Like, it's this weird total mind fuck when it comes to, like, wait, so it's like it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy that, that like an action that you're about to do leads you to do the action that you're about to do. So total mind fuck. Anyway, the betrayal <laughs> in this life, and it's just like, what the fuck? Um, <laughs> no, I'm not. The, the betrayal in this life happened because as a shaman, I was very young, but as a shaman, my job, I could see that there was an impending catastrophe coming. Right? I could see that we were the whole paradigm of the sun was about to change right? But nobody could see it past it. None of the holy people could see past it because the world was so very different that it was like, it was like trying to see the color violet when you didn't have that, this receptors for color violet. Right. Like, yeah. Or, yeah. So, so I was sent etherically to go see what was past the wall and it looked like a wall. Like it literally looked like a wall. It was like, it was like all of a sudden time stopped, right? Like time stopped And there was nothing that anyone could see past it, right? Because the electromagnetic field of the earth disappeared, right? So when all of our memories are based on electromagnetic, that's why like tapes work, right? Because tapes record magnetically memories. So when you lose the magnetic field of the earth, all the memories get wiped. It's like wiping a tape. Right. Yeah, this is crazy. I know we're going, We're getting into a whole other territory. But the whole point being that it was like a wall and no one could see past it. So as a holy person, I was sent forward into time to see what was going on. And I died. I got stuck and I died. I basically ended up in a wasteland. I basically like imagine popping your head up and the you can't breathe. You can't see anything. It's just like this desert, windy, desolate, bright, mm-hmm. bright, like you've never even known it bright sort of thing. And I perished. And I felt completely betrayed by the Earth Mother, who, who was my god. She was my goddess in this time period. And then I had, left, I had basically seen her completely abandon what felt like she had completely abandoned us wow. um, past this wall. So it was very intense and really out there. That was my betrayal experience. I love and-
0: it. <laughs> yeah. All right, number five is the fear of failure. And for this one, again, was working as the maid, and that I had a fear of failure. And I ended up having, this is so so odd, but I ended up having an affair with the owner of mm-hmm. that downtown Abbey type home because I had such a fear of failure and of being so low that when he pa- this man paid any attention to me, I was just like, sure, whatever you want, whatever, whatever will make you actually see me as a human. So I, I had sex with the um, owner of the home. Totally not because I was horny, but because I wanted to feel not like a failure. Yeah. So how does that translate into this life? Well, don't know, but I can say my arm is feeling better and I'm going to see what happens with, you know, with all that. Yeah. All right. Number six is fear of intimacy. So in the book, Ainsley McLeod says like, one way you know if you have a fear of intimacy is if you don't 100% give yourself to your partner you know, you're not 100% intimate, like you have avoidant or anxious attachment. And I was thinking about it and I was thinking about how before my husband, if I was in a relationship where the guy was unavailable in some way, either it was a long distance relationship or he had some fundamental character flaw that I knew I would never actually marry him with that flaw, I could be 100% vulnerable and intimate with them, right? And then if they were a good guy or they were available, I wouldn't. And so like with my husband, I was like, you know what? I can totally relate to that fear of intimacy thing because I don't know know if I can say with certainty that I've given myself, my open my heart 100% to my husband. Maybe a few moments here and there when I've like cried and been vulnerable, but like I can't say that I've opened my heart to him with the passion and intent that I have given my heart to unavailable men, (laughs) as fucked up as that is. And sorry for saying that to my husband's listening, but that's just... Well, your husband, you've told your husband that. Yeah, Yeah. I mean, but that's just the truth of it. So I was like, well, where did my fear of intimacy come? I want to know. I want to know. And I was taken back to the worst past life that I could ever imagine having. I fucking hated this life. It was extremely traumatic to see. And I just want to say trigger warning here. If child abuse and rape are big triggers for you, please just fast forward about a minute from this episode because I'm going to go into some really, really horrible things here, okay? Okay.
1: Side note, you can go to minute 44 in order to totally skip this story. Thanks, y'all.
0: So in this life, I was a little African boy, and I was very mischievous. And so the clan leader of my tribe decided that when these traders came looking for human slaves, he traded me because I was an annoying child, okay? So I was traded, and I was being put on a slave ship, Okay. All right. Ugh, this is horrible. So first of all, I was all alone. I had no parent. I'm like, this was the really hard life. Okay. And my parents were not there. I didn't know anybody. I didn't even speak the same language of the other slaves on the ship because I was coming from a different tribe. I didn't have my mom. I'm all alone. There are people sick and dying all over this fucking slave ship. And then... The white men, I think they were Dutch. Like, I don't know. I don't know the language. Like, to me, they were just these very large, white, red, red faced men with Mm -hmm. beards. Like, I was like, I'd never seen white men before. They decided that I was going to be their sex toy. So I was taken up on the deck level to be basically a sex toy for these men. And they ended up perforating me to the point that I was dying from internal injuries. So they laughingly threw me over the boat to die because I no longer served a purpose. And it was just like that that group mentality of human barbarity um, to abuse a child, to abuse a motherless, fatherless child, and then to toss their body into the ocean because they were dying and no longer served their oh purpose. God. Oh my God, okay, like this is probably the worst thing you'll ever hear anywhere. There's gonna never be a movie about that level of human barbarism. I was traumatic watching this life. I experienced the most painful sense of cruelty and sadness that humans could possibly treat another human this way and uh it was horrible it was absolutely horrible like I cannot express to you how sad that would be for a child okay and physically painful and you know the salt water licking my wounds I mean just It was horrible. Okay. Horrible, horrible, horrible. But what I saw from that was that that was fundamentally where my fear of intimacy came from. I did not trust people. I was given a perspective that humans could be fucking ugly and dangerous and cruel. And I think that that is where my fear of intimacy came from. Fear of being vulnerable and fear of being
1: Me, I mean that's it fear of being you too right like that's such a huge part of it is that like you were deemed bad and thought of as expendable right even by the tribe by the people that you trusted right like like, everybody pretty much yeah by everybody
0: I mean my not my not my parents I mean I don't my mom was upset that I was being taken right but anyways that was my intimacy fear life and how has it changed me since I believe and I think my husband would agree that I since I did that regression I am opening my heart up to him. Like, he's not a slave trader. He's not a rapist. He's not a child abuser. Like, ah, he's safe. Yeah. So there's that. Wow. Really intense. Thank you for sharing. All right, moving right along to self expression.
1: Yeah, I'll I'll do my self expression. Self expression obviously has a lot to do with being yourself, right? So uh, part of that life, that intimacy life, was also probably self-expression for you as well. And the experience that I had with self-expression was one that I had with, we mentioned it on the episode where we interviewed Robbie, the shaman that we work with. And in this particular one, it was the experience of being a witch, going out into a field, having a full fucking rain cloud party and, calling up all the elements and having the the skies open and having them open so much and just being so elated and fucking, I can just feel it just being so validated and powerful and like, just so I felt so endless in my euphoria that I just kept the skies open. And what ended up happening was there was a flood downstream. There was basically a flash flood and I ended up killing people downstream like basically an entire village got wiped away because I was just like in this euphoria of of like power and and all of that and so the life allowed me to coming to grips with the life allowed me to recognize that I had created a contract after that life because I had been burnt, like I had been killed after that life after I, I was I was rightfully blamed but I ended up punishing myself even more than they could have punished me by killing me in the sense that I created a contract that said that I would never be, you know, I would always regulate myself. I would never allow myself to be fully and totally powerful in the same way again, as retribution for myself. It was a self-punishment that happened so that I could never fully express myself again. And so in the session with Robbie, I broke the contract. I broke that contract so that I could finally express myself in a different way. I think that sometimes I still have aspects of that contract or maybe it's a different level of it but certainly after that it was so wonderful because there was a the validation of the skies just opened up suddenly it was like a totally blue and perfect day and all of a sudden the skies opened up and there was like massive lightning thunderstorm that happened like as I was doing that so it was pretty magical
0: all right I'm gonna take a break so <laughs> yeah after that slave ship I'm a little
1: I totally you, your turn number totally eight yeah powerlessness so This was a life that I had in which I died shortly before my life. So technically, chronologically, it's the one that I had right before where I died in a plane crash. And the main feeling of powerlessness came because of the fact that being on a plane means that you're not in control. You're trusting your life entirely over to somebody else. And it was a plane that ran off the runway and... Everybody, well, I think half the people perished. I think, I think I can't remember exactly, but I've been able to go to Wikipedia and actually see the date and the time of when it happened. And I remember, I remember what happened when it landed. I remember seeing myself. Like I basically had an out-of-body experience as I watched the plane crash from the outside. So like instead of being in my body as I was dying, I jumped out and was watching the whole thing happen from the ground with my body inside and yeah. that definitely contributed to feelings of wanting to be in control and having powerlessness and has seen
0: it change your perspective on airplanes cuz didn't you have plane anxiety before that It
1: did and it definitely does a lot of the time though what I end up doing is kind of almost like a coping mechanism as I go out of body in planes which is an interesting thing to do right like it was like it was interesting that that was like the result of it i mean like I think that one of the things that you'll see in the interview next week is that there is an evolution of the powerlessness lesson for me, and I think that maybe that that airplane was one of them. But yeah,
0: interesting. Yeah. All right. The fear of rejection. So I didn't have any past lives that really dive deep into that fear, except for the maid one, where I was a, considered a failure and all that. So I did do an Ainsley MacLeod regression to go into my rejection, mm-hmm. fear of rejection, and I saw myself as a little indigenous boy in in venezuela and mm-hmm. i want it was pre i don't know if it was pre-colonial or if it was just we were one of those tribes that was untouched by modern society but like we were the people who had like tattoos on our face and you know the short black hair like this and like objects in our lips yep okay so i don't know where that is but i think it's been it felt like venezuela and i was a member of a tribe Mm-hmm. And one day we we're sitting around a circle just talking and the sh- a sh- our village shaman, our, our tribal shaman comes after me and just starts trying to beat me to death in front of everyone randomly. And my mother puts her arm, you know runs and covers me and he ends up killing her instead of me. and I'm excommunicated by the tribe and, and sent out of the tribe because the shaman foresaw me as being he said something's. I can't. I didn't know what it was, but he he had a vision of the future that involved me as somehow being cursed or bad or something happening to me, and so he wanted to kill me to protect me from that and to protect the village from that. Okay, so my mother died trying to protect me from the shaman, and in this culture, there was not a word for crazy. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't like, it never even crossed my mind. Well, the shaman is really old. He's gone fucking crazy. So there, there was none of that. It was, it was no dismissal of the shaman or, or the fact that he was really old or anything like that. It was like his words were gold. And so it didn't, it didn't matter that he was really old or maybe he was going senile and crazy thinking yeah. that I was this threat, right. but I was still excommunicated from the tribe. So then I'm living in the trees by myself. And experiencing a deep sense of rejection. Some, you know, sad that my mother died because something's, you know, wrong with me. I I feel rejected by my community. That community was like everything. And then I was abducted by aliens. So the shaman's premonition was correct. He did foresee me being somehow, you know, odd and a threat and i had a ufo experience in those jungles of the amazon and i soon after died because i was living alone and in trees and i fell out of a tree and died not long after that but that's
1: very oedipal in the sense that like the shaman played a part in fulfilling the yeah you know what i mean like he fulfilled
0: the prophecy because i was all alone
1: well it's the same thing with the with the, the story of oedipus in the story of oedipus if they hadn't had the premonition that Oedipus would marry his mother and kill his father, they would never have thrown him away, and it was only in throwing him away that he was allowed to fulfill that prophecy.
0: Well, maybe well maybe those aliens were coming for me regardless, and by me being excommunicated from the tribe, I saved other tribe members from either also being, you know, brought up in that ship for maybe. a couple moments yeah. or or just not having to deal with the trauma of seeing this huge black spaceship hovering yep. over the jungle. Yep. Anyways, so that was that one on rejection, which is this This whole episode has become a lot more... a little out there than we expected it to, but that's, <laughs> that's that.
1: We're talking about past lives. But let so, me just... Yeah. I just
0: want to preface it with the spaceship incident was not actually scary. It was only a disruption to my reality, a, yeah. disrupt, a disruption to like what I thought was normal, but the alien on the spaceship was benevolent and loving so it was okay okay let me just i just want to say that for anyone listening all right now the last past life fear is the fear of death and i i feel like i'm not really going to go too much into this one because in all of the past lives i got to move forward and see my own death and i and i think in his book he says more so this is a fear of untimely death this is the fear of dying young dying before your time is up that kind of thing i don't really have a past life that i know of that i could you know go into on that one do you did you ever die Uh,
1: i think the plain one was one of the ones that i had for death and i but i still it's still something that i definitely struggle with
0: so in conclusion i just want to say that psychics like ainsley mcleod or other cyclics can read you and tell you what your past lives are you can have a past life regression you can access ainsley mcleod's book where he has a regression or you can do brian weiss regressions or you can go on YouTube and find past life regressions. so there's ways for you to access this through hypnosis to heal it and we'll put links to all that in the show notes mm-hmm. and one of the reasons why past life regressions are so important I think is it's just another level of shadow work like we talk mm-hmm. in so many other episodes that we have so many layers to our existence we have the the actual reality the subtle reality the deeper reality where a lot of unconscious things are hidden and that's where those past lives fears are coming we have ultimate reality where everything's okay and we are all one and so this is a way of really going into some deeper beliefs and and stuff
1: I think one of the things I love that Ainsley McLeod says in particular is that your soul only has one life so to your soul all of these past lives are still just earlier memories right so it's like to the, it's like you may be waking up in a new body and being like, oh, I only have memory of this body and the experience of being in this body. But your soul, to your soul, the Jonestown memory is yesterday, right? Like mm. it was like, it's like a couple of years yeah. ago. I was in Jonestown and that happened, and right? And they're like, so, don't
0: drink the fucking poison, Anna. Right. So the
1: the the memory of the soul is in that way. And it can be as simple as reminding your soul that that was not in this current incarnation, And reminding it that that was, even though it felt like the same life, even though it felt like just an earlier part of that same life, it can be just a matter of reminding the soul that it's not. And that can be
0: enough to heal it. Yeah. All right. Tune in next week for our interview with Ainsley McLeod. Thank you.
1: We hope that you enjoyed this episode of This Spiritual Fix. Stay tuned next week when we actually interview Ainsley McLeod. Have a great day. And remember... Humility. Gratitude. Book a free call with me at www.chriswilte.com forward slash discover. Hi, y'all. Listening to the last season of This Spiritual Fix may have stirred up for you some awareness of how the mother wound ties into so many of our subconscious needs and desires in our daily lives. Well, we've put together a comprehensive five-week course on this mother wound, complete with meditations, journal prompts, and never-before-seen videos and lectures. This course is designed for you to heal your personal and cosmic attachment wounds, reparent yourself, and surrender to the Great Mother. This course is an intense experience for spiritual seekers, and maybe you're not ready for something that intense, yet. So we've put together our version of what we call the Shadow Work Essentials Course, the Mother Wound Mini to give you access and awareness to this wound with tools to process your energy and to remember the Cosmic Mother's love for you. I cannot emphasize enough how much this work has changed my relationship with my partner, my kids, my family, and the world. It can be life-changing for you, too. Go to our shop, www.thisspiritualfix.com forward slash shop for more details.